welcome back to another episode of the engineering side of data. Got a great topic here today. I'm joined by Johnny Chivers, and we're going to be talking about data lakes on AWS. Johnny, thanks a lot for joining me today. Uh, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Um, yep. Uh, as Bob said, I'm Johnny Chivers. I'm a data engineer, primarily working in the AWS tech stack for over the last half a decade. Now, uh, I switched roles a couple of weeks ago to work in the cybersecurity industry. But before that, I spent five, six years working in the financial services sector, building, enhancing, maintaining AWS um, data lakes. Aside from that, outside of the kind of day job, I also run a YouTube channel under my name, Johnny Chivers, where I just make free content, free content pretty much on everything data engineering and AWS. Um, and I, I do weekly uploads there um, from the very beginning, beginner kind of stage right up to the kind of professional stage, depending on what you're trying to do. And then alongside that, um, I also dabble in a bit of web design. So I created an app called thequestionbank.io, which is a completely free resource where it kind of contains 100 questions. Um, and we're building that all the time for your AWS certification. So you can go visit, visit that at thequestionbank.io. And from there, um, you can sign up and then start heading towards AWS certifications uh, with questions for free. Nice. Yeah, folks, go out there and check out Johnny's channel, his YouTube channel. All that will be in the notes in the podcast and on the YouTube. It'll be in the description. Make sure you check it out. He's got a lot of great content out there. Put a lot of effort to it. Um, good stuff. Subscribe and like every single one of his viewers. I'm sorry, one of his, every single one of his videos. And then uh, <laughs> go ahead and create some additional YouTube accounts and like and subscribe all the videos there, too. So. Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, let's, <laughs> and thanks for coming on. Uh, let's see, uh, while we jump right into the questions here. So uh, what is a data lake exactly? That's a controversial question in the community sometimes to start with. Uh, fundamentally, at, a, at its origins, uh, the data lake itself is just the central repository of structured and unstructured data. It's nothing more, it's not the compute, it's not what we use to organize the data. It is quite simply where the data is stored. And in saying that, that can be a very small data lake up to a massive scalable data lake. Um, the definition itself has got a bit more blurry as the technology has got better over the last decade. Um, and people would start to add in the compute side um, that you use to look at the data as part of the data lake ecosystem. But as the data lake itself, Fundamentally, at its heart, it's just storage. And in terms of that kind of storage itself, it may have, it would have started on a file system originally, just on old disks lying around. And that was the idea of a data lake that you could run it on old hard drives. But as we've moved into the cloud and things have got better, now you would host it in AWS and S3, Azure, you would use something like blob storage. Um, file systems still are available and out there and are still widely used. But as we move into the cloud, we're, we're moving towards that cheap storage. So. In answer to the question, fundamentally, it is just the storage component of where we put the data. Um, but as it's got better over the last decade, the ecosystem itself has started to include other things like compute and the catalog. And I'm sure we'll get into the kind of the weeds of what exactly that is uh, over the course of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. What are some common use cases with data lakes? Anything and everything I have seen them used for uh, <laughs> over the last six years, seven years. Um, so, you know, the data lake fundamentally started as a place where companies, uh, financial services, the, the web companies like Facebook, companies that produce a lot of data, 
didn't quite know what to do with this data, but knew they couldn't afford to put it into a traditional warehouse. So they started creating the late concept where they would say, let's forget about ETL on this data. Let's forget about cleansing this data. Let's just put it somewhere and then try and do something with it. And that's really where the data lake started. It was an analyzation tool where they would you would dump as much data as possible um, that you wanted and you were paying it cheap on storage and then figure out what you would do with the data after by analyzing that data at scale. And that's probably where you've heard things originally like Hadoop came in and MapReduce. And obviously we've moved away from those kind of compute sites now, but that's where it all started. Now, the lake has developed into this whole catch-all stuff where actually our, our tools for analyzing the data and working with the data that we've stored have got a lot better, which means the lake use cases have moved progressively along over that period of time. So where it used to be a kind of catch-all, figure out what to do, this day and age, I have lakes that are running for, for in, in companies um, today where we take the data and serve it straight out to business users that they could use it directly. Data analysts would still use that data. Data scientists love the data lake where they can go in and get all the raw data that they need to start forming their models and AI algorithms. And then even more recently, uh, one of the financial services company I was working for, we put the lake in the heart of its brand new application. It was serving data out into... Uh, customers' applications via a cache, admittedly. But what it was being used for was bringing together a load of different data sources, disparate data sources, and then centrally storing them in the lake and then pushing that out there cache for a web app to hide. So it's went from that catch-all to now even supporting applications and organizations where I've worked. Um, and, and that's really the drive of the data lake. It's let's get all this data and then do something with it meaningful from a business perspective. Yeah. I would echo that. I've seen that as well. You're right. In the beginning, it was, we have all this data. We're not doing anything with currently, but we might. We just might someday. So let's go ahead and dump it in there. Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of uh, not so great things became of that. But they do seem to be more purpose-built nowadays. And including like you just brought up was that, you know, this idea of supporting applications, right? This centralized, maybe even a data hub of sorts. Right, I've seen that application grow, not just in the analytics space, but again, the application space as well. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, fun, fundamentally, as you said, it started as that catch-all. Then the BI team came along and started creating dashboards out of it, and then I think the application team must have saw the dashboards and went, "Well, hang on, this must be easier than us just going and getting this data and remodeling it." And the whole thing kind of took off from there. I think yeah. as well, you know, when I talk about the lake, fundamentally it's the storage, but it's also as the compute side of what we use to actually look at the data in the lake has caught up with the amount of data that we have that we can offer these different solutions um, to different problems along the way. And the open source community behind, you know, the, the data lake movement, whether that be the likes of the Presto DB engine or the Hadoop community or the Hive community or the Spark community, they're the Apache uh, community as well that look after the likes of Parquet, which is the format we'll get into that you can store data in the lake. There's such a drive behind it from open source that it's it's gathering speed at a rate of knots and it makes those kind of use cases uh, be more realized um, than they used to be. If you came maybe seven years ago with the data lake and said, hey, I want to run a client-side app off it, you would have been looked at and probably told, mm, you're going to need to go get a database somewhere. We can we can send you the data, but you're certainly not going to run your app off it. Yeah, for sure. You, you've talked about some um, some of the good things about data lakes, right? You know, it's uh, people are building them with more intent, right? Careful planning, 
the cloud has certainly helped, right? You've talked about S3, Azure Blob, the GCP stuff. So that makes it even easier, right? But what are some of those pitfalls with the data lake? Like all good things, it's, it's major pitfall is its fundamental good thing, which is the volume of data you can have in a data lake. And that comes from different sides of things. So you've got the volume of data to get into a lake in, in this day and age is huge. And even with cloud technology, that can still still be struggling. So I work for a financial services company, um, one, of, one of the future exchanges uh, based out of uh, America and around the world. Uh, I won't name the company, but you can probably work it out from that. Um, and we were dealing with trade transaction volume that we needed to get into the data lake to be looked at later in the day for end of day reporting from BI. And because the transactional trades are done on a millisecond, there was a lot of issues trying to get those route down to S3. You couldn't actually send them in real time into your data lake directly. And that's where streaming technologies like Kafka came in, where we would put them onto a Kafka stream. But even then, we couldn't write them off the Kafka screen directly. We had to build a Flink app in the middle, which is another open, open source tool, which is great for reading real-time data off Kafka, and then buffer that down so S3 could actually handle the reads. So the volume of data in the sense of getting it in can still be a challenge, but with the open source and the amount of tech we have, we can get there. Um, and the cloud, as I said, has really helped out with this because now storage is cheap, trying things out is cheap. There's no overhead to going out and trying a solution and it not working from a capital expenditure point where you're now sitting with a load of hardware that you're like, we can't use this anymore. It's a, it's a spin up. Oh, that didn't work. Spin it back down. And then with that volume of data, there's governance concerns that come in. If you're landing a lot of data in, in a daily basis, it needs governance in terms of it needs catalogs, but also in this day and age of like GDPR and things like that, you need to know from a legal standpoint, what's in your lake at any given time. Um, to make sure you meet the legal requirements where you where you are. And then on top of that, after governance, there's good old security. And I don't even mean security externally from Lake, because if you're working even in this day and age in a Lake, in a hybrid cloud environment, uh, where you might have an on-prem and off-prem, the Lakes are usually pretty secure by the team anyway. You, you're very unlikely to be able to penetrate in set up, right? But security internally is becoming more fundamental, especially with the likes, again, I'll mention GDPR laws or HIPAA laws in, in America, uh, where there's only certain people who have a business need can see that data. And that includes production data. And that can start to become a, a real headache to try and manage in a lake where you have a high volume of data. And especially if you're a catch-all, you need to know everything that's coming in, being moved along, and actually what the class of, classification of that data is. And then as I, as I kind of hinted as well, the lake has progressed and we've talked about this into the realms of applications. So because you have that volume of data and people expect more from that volume of data, uh, in terms of what they're able to do with it. So they might think it's like running on a small MySQL database, or if they were to download some data locally and run some Python code across it, like a data scientist would do typically. Um, they expect now the data lake to be able to handle that. So. A pitfall of the data lake is, yes, you have all that volume of data, but if the users can't get at it in an efficient way, then it's not any good to them either. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, if I were to put a central theme around a lot of those pitfalls you, you mentioned is, man, we miss databases. We're not deal with a data lake, right? The transactions, <laughs> yeah. the security model, you know, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, you know, and then people go, well, okay, well, how do I, how do I update a record? Right. And there's some things that have come along to help that out. How do I, how do I, you know, GDPR, I need to delete this customer at their request. 
oh boy, how do I do that in a conventional data lake? Again, things are improving every day, but yeah, you start missing a database pretty quickly once you start working with a data lake. You, you really do um, at times because the fundamental features of a database have been hardened over the last 30, 40 years. And a data lake destroys those concepts in an instant. Yeah. And the 10 years, it was like, you know, here's all this web data essentially is where it started really with the likes of Facebook, just getting all their data in and then trying to analyze it through MapReduce. And they weren't particularly concerned because it was just looking at like web traffic and what users were kind of doing on the platform. And as legislation has caught up with what actually companies are doing with their data, then it's kind of like, oh, we really, you know, the database really was built for this. And data lake technology yeah. is now looking at a database and saying, right, we need to catch up to the database level of security and governance or else we're dead in the water. And I think, thankfully, over the last three years, it really has. But it's getting that rolled out now in, in, in the systems to say, yeah, we are completely compliant and this is why. Yep, pretty tough. You mentioned, uh, we, we touched on consumers a little bit about the data lake, right? You mentioned, obviously, you got analysts and data scientists, and you also mentioned applications, right? What are, let's, let's start with the more on the, I guess, the analytics side of the house. How are people getting at that data? And what kind of tools are they using to access data in the data lake? Yeah, I mean, my experience is, is over the last kind of six years is AWS, and it's kind of merged no matter what data lake you're using. You've got all this data, and you've got data scientists or, or data analysts or BI guys who want to build dashboards and analytics out of that data. And they're used to either a database connection or self-serving themselves files off their laptop. And the data lake slightly changes that concept where the, the data volume is so high now, those technologies don't work. And kind of in their place, um, cloud providers have came up with their own solutions. So in terms of BI dashboards, AWS have their have their own uh, version now called QuickSight, where it can hook directly into a data lake using an Athena connection, which is a Presto engine underneath. And that's completely open source. It was developed by, by Uber. And it's kind of the gold standard of using SQL against the data lake. Um, which is also great, you know, fundamentally before you had to know Java really to get it big data, but now we've gone down the kind of PySpark and, and, and SQL route, which is, which is great. And that's the AWS offering. Um, but the likes of Tableau now have an Athena connector, so you can connect in from, from Tableau. There are other offerings such as, you know, one of the big buzzwords around right now is Snowflake. It operates slightly different where your data would sit on S3, but come Snowflake time, it would actually then lift the data that you want into a virtual warehouse into its compute nodes and then hold it there where you do your analytics and then drop it back out. And that's, you know, just some examples, you know, Click have their own offerings as well. I've worked on the Click platform over at Data Lake, um, began life called Podium, and it was actually bought out by Click. Um, and it offers its own kind of ETL studio inside the Click data catalog now to work to work with the data and then produce dashboards out of the Click dashboard uh, on top of it. In terms of then data scientists, um, the, the likes of AWS have SageMaker, uh, which is a fully ingrained, custom-built data studio that just integrates straight in with your AWS data lake on the S3. Um, and there's no issues there with them using that that type. Alternatively, um, you know, on top of the AWS, even have things like Athena, which is a serverless uh, access point for Presto up there. I saw data scientists and data analysts access the data there. Business users in particular, uh, in terms of AWS lakes, I, they're quite comfortable, or I find that they're quite comfortable um, using Athena itself because it's a simple query engine for them. 
The downside to Athena is the expense. At the moment, you are paying $5 per terabit of data, data scanned. But in terms of an operational overhead, in terms of not having to retrain business users, it is a reasonable trade-off um, at the moment until maybe something more proprietary or open source even comes along and, and replaces that ease of integration. Yeah. Uh, and then the app side of thing as well, uh, building apps recently and a lot of data lakes now or a lot of applications, there's an open source connector in through Athena as well. So you can actually ingrain Athena into your app and then call it asynchronously or synchronously, whatever way you want to do it, and then access your data lake through there into the, the app. And then there is third-party tools as well, as I said, that are coming along and building their own access points in, in the data lakes on, on top of it. You know, Anaconda, the studio itself now can, can work with S3 if that was the way you're inclined to, to access through Python, for example. Oh, man, didn't know that. Yeah, you mentioned Athena. I'm a big Athena fan. Yeah. And um, it, it is a great way. It's, you know, serverless. It's relatively cheap, right? And it is pitched as an exploratory solution. Uh, if you do find yourself um, maybe having some dashboards or reports that are run with some frequency, you could always, if you want to, spin up EMR, get Presto going, and use that to access it. But if you're doing some exploratory stuff or it's light use, man, Athena is, you can't go wrong. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I mean, recently, the the last organization I worked for before I moved into this cybersecurity job, we were running a data lake uh, off S, back on S3, but our access layer for analysts was actually through through EMR, uh, through Hive, actually. They were using a Hive login. Um, not great, um, but that's the way they were accessing it for a cost reason. Our security at the time... Uh, where they were running Apache Ranger, which again is open source and actually helps with access to the data, uh, works off AD groups to, to permission who can see data, a bit more like a traditional, traditional database. Um, but then they would log in and use Hive to look at the data. And at that point, it would lift the data off S3, put it onto the EMR nodes, and then the user would then Hive query would then run against it and they could actually view the data that way. And the last thing we did there was actually transition them off that EMR cluster to Athena. And the reason we did that was that the EMR cluster was 50 nodes. Uh, it was up wow. pretty much seven days a week, and we were taking it down on a Sunday to recycle it. And in terms of cost analysis, in terms of how many issues we would have with having to recycle things, losing nodes, building nodes back in, and then even have to manage the elasticity of that cluster to deal with things at peak time, and then the operational overhead of the DevOps team plus the team that I was on, it just was no longer cost effective. It was easier to pay the Athena cost then actually maintain that cluster for that purpose. Yeah. Even though if you set out the Athena queries versus the hive, those Hive queries and you looked at that in isolation, the, the Hive query method with the EMR was cheaper. But once you took in the operational side of looking after that, then Athena won every day of the week. Yeah. 50 node cluster in EMR is, yeah. Yeah, not something that you can just spin it up and uh, put it aside and don't worry about it. Just recycle mm -hmm. it on the weekends. Yeah, <laughs> there's a little bit yeah. more to it than that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Good, good point. More. Yeah. Yeah. How does, um, so you, yeah, obviously you mentioned the volume of data, right? I mean, that's typically where a data lake sells. You get lots of data in there, right? So how do we keep track of all this data that we've got lying around? Uh, trickily sometimes. <laughs> 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 you know, it, there was a real race to market, I would say, seven or eight years ago for a tool that could catalog da the data in a data lake correctly. Uh, and, you know, now there's, there's, there's a couple, uh, I've worked with 
of a lot of them over my career. Clebra uh, is kind of the leading one, but they won't touch organizations unless you have more than a $500 million uh, turnover a year. That's the kind of enterprise size that they look at with their product. And you're talking anywhere between 100000 to $500,000 plus for that product. So that's the kind of money that they're looking. But that's fully governance, HIPAA compliant. Uh, you can actually start analyzing and running data uh, queries from inside Calibra and attach your own clusters into it. So, you know, it's got a lot of bells and whistles. Overkill for some places. I've also experienced with the Click Data Catalog. It actually started out as a thing called Podium, which was a startup. And again, it was uh, it actually is a, is a Java-based application that sits on, on a Tomcat server. And it was a catalog itself where it sat over your data lake and it was able, when you laid down a file or you used its interface to actually ingest your data, it took in the metadata about that. Then along came an open source product uh, called Amundsen, which was by Lyft, and it's now looked after by the Linux Foundation. And again, it integrates with data lakes um, to look after the data. So it can actually look at S3 and infer things, but... More commonly, what's happening these days in the likes of AWS, there's the Glue Data Catalog. The Glue Data Catalog is a Hive 3 meta store abstracted away from the user. So it contains what I would always call the technical metadata about your data. So it's location of the data, size of the data, what format the data is in, what columns the data has. And that's great to have as a technical catalog. And then it integrates into other AWS ecosystem tools. And then it makes analyzing the data easier because you have your, your schema essentially on hand. What it's not good at or not fully good at is the business side of a data catalog and keeping track from a governance point of view. And that's where I think something like Amundsen comes into its own as an open source project where you can actually ingest your glue data catalog and then add those business definitions alongside. Um, and then you get that full data catalog experience that you need uh, in this day and age to govern your lake completely. Now, it won't suit everybody's needs. And, you know, especially at enterprise level, you don't aren't always open to open source. And you may want to go down the more expensive route of the likes of Click Data Catalog, Calibra, and Informatica have an enterprise data catalog as well that I've worked with. It actually has its own Hadoop cluster. And then essentially it ingests all the metadata from your Glue Data Catalog or your Hive Metastore and then does profiling on the data as it sits as well and then populates that information. But again, those are li those licenses are well into the tens of thousands of dollars. That's what you'd be talking about for something like that. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have some experience with the Glue, the glue Data Catalog. I would agree. Right? I don't think a, a business user could search the Glue Data you know, the glue catalog and come up with something meaningful, right? There's nothing that says, hey, where do I get the sales information? Or, you know, yeah, the typical no. things that come with more of the more mature data catalogs that are business focused. Yeah, I mean, the, the glue data catalog at its heart is just, you know, if you think about it, it's just a database schema. It's like if you're in a, a client database, whether that be Microsoft SQL Server or PG Admin for Postgres, it's essentially the left-hand side object explorer just in a nicer format. <laughs> Good <laughs> point. It's yeah. always viewed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> very true. But all, yeah, I guess the the silver lining is if uh, you know if it can be improved and people are asking about it, AWS will certainly deliver it, right? So, it, yeah. oh, they will. Yeah, they, they will. Absolutely, very good about that. Um, we, we've talked about uh, schema on read, right? We kind of talked about not without naming it in the beginning, right? This idea of hey, let's put this data in the data lake, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll need it but we don't really need to concern ourselves with the integrity or the structure of it right now, right? So we got schema on read, 
maybe that's kind of considered maybe more of the legacy approach, but then you also have schema on right. Uh, how would you describe the differences between the two and what do you favor? Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if we think back to the world of databases again, where all our data dreams began, um, schema on writes traditionally what you would see there. And we've all been there where you're writing an ingest program, whether that be something in Microsoft like SSIS or even in the Postgres SQL. And the next thing your code spits out an error and says, cannot put in this row data type mismatch or something along that line. And then you sit there and you go, right, I've got a file of three gig. I'm not going to have to go into this file find the row that's causing me a problem and look at that row and then fundamentally figure out what's going on. And that's a schema on write where you're checking the data types, the lengths of the columns um, as you write the data down. And then fundamentally you get the error back if there is one. Schema on read with the data lake, it's a completely different approach. It's chuck all the data down, just get it in. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, just get it in. And then the schema, which you know is your, your columns and data types, write it out. And then when you go to query the data, we'll check it meets that at the read time. So we're more concerned about getting the data in. And then when there's an issue with the schema um, on write, we will, or on read, we'll flag it up then that you have a problem with your data. So both have the pros and cons. You know, schema on write, you know there's something wrong with your data that goes in. And if it's critical, you're going to fix it at source. But on the other hand, we've all been there and it's like, what is going on? And it turns out there's like a road comma somewhere in a csv file and it's destroyed everything for you for an entire day yeah and now you've got a build up and a backlog and actually you've missed the next data load coming and then everyone's on a crisis call for the next four hours and no one sleeps that night until till it's back schema on read doesn't yeah. have those problems you don't you yeah. know it's until you actually read it but then it fundamentally introduces another problem you don't know if the data is always correct unless you've put some other check in on the way and you don't know that the data will fit your schema um so what I found is that if you have some checks on the way in on the data for schema on read, you're going to be okay, but that slows down the process. The other side of it is that if you're okay with reading that data out at some point in time and it being incorrect, then schema on read is great for that as well. You just want to get the data in. And then if the data lake's now progressing, there's a real loggerhead over this. You know, there's technologies out there now that are saying, no, we want schema on write for our data, for our data lake. And there's other people saying, no, no, no. Historically, it's always been schema on read, and we're going to keep it that way. Yeah. And make it's it, a real, real make it the analyst problem. Exactly. <laughs> schema on read. Push that ball down. Schema, to... <laughs> down. I didn't, I, we didn't output this data. It didn't come from us. Yeah. We got it from some legacy system over yeah. there. <laughs> You're going to have to talk to the application people. We don't know anything yeah. about that. <laughs> I kind of, I sometimes find with the data lake, by the time the data gets there, you know, it's been through that many processes and it's come downstream from, you know, a source system that has a well-defined schema or a warehouse that someone's already pigeonholed it into that by the time you get the schema on read on it, the likelihood of something going wrong is, is a lot less than if it was an application database at source where it was taking in user data or from a form or something. And that's really what you hope with the data lake is that the data that's coming there has been through, um, that amount of trials and tribulations that by the time it gets there, it's in a, it's in a decent state, that, that touching wood, obviously yeah. <laughs> as much as possible at that point, but that would be yeah. the idea behind it. Yeah. Uh, so in a data lake, there's essentially files, right? What, what kind of formats are these files typically, right? I imagine they CSV could be one. What are, what are some of the other formats that are out there? Yeah. I mean, the idea of a data lake is, is 
initially that you can throw anything at it and it will take it. So JSON, CSV, .text is very common as well. Um, the limited files, you know, that, that the user has defined itself. Binary files exist as well in data lakes. The problem with that is that is when you when you go to search those files or query those files, it's expensive. In fact, depending on the volume of data you have, it can get very expensive. You know, if you take a text file or a CSV file, and it's two terabits in size, and you're searching for you know Johnny in that file. Well, that query engine is going to have to go in and read that entire file to find where Johnny is in that file. So it's going to read through all that data, and it's going to be an expensive operation. Thankfully, uh, I think Facebook started the kind of trend. They, I'm pretty sure they did Parquet um, that's now handled by Apache, an open source. They thought this isn't a good way to go. We're uh, going to have to invent some file file formats here that work better with data lakes. And that's where the likes of you know Parquet and there's Orc as well came into play where they took that concept of the file system and then thought about it in terms of a query engine. And what I mean by that is that, for example, Parquet itself is now columnar in format, so you're no longer reading rows. So if we had a text file and we were transitioning that into Parquet through through some sort of ETL code, it would take a row, and instead of saving it as a row, it would save it now as a column. But it's even smarter than that. It actually used things called row groups, where it will group the rows of a column together, so it will aid searching, which means if you know what your query is going to be, like it has an order by, for example, then you're storing the data in the order that that query is going to run against. And then it goes a step further than that and actually creates a dictionary at the top of the file as well, which is actually a, a dictionary, I think, off the top of my head. And it stores all the different words that are in that file or different characters that are in that file as a dictionary and saves it just once for each character um, that it finds. And that means when a query now comes to that part A file, the only thing it needs to do is look at the head of the file to see does that thing that you're looking for exist in the entire file. And then it also keeps further metadata at the top of the file, like max and mins of counts and columns and words and strings. So that query engine now needs to just read the head of the file to know what the max and min of the file is and actually does the thing I'm looking for exist anywhere in this file. And from that point then with Parquet, you're able to efficiently start searching large volumes of data because you're no longer reading everything in that in that file structure. And Orc fundamentally works the same, except its compression algorithm is higher. Um, which means it's cheaper to store it, but it can cost a bit more to uncompress it. Um, but Parquet really seems the way that the data lakes in terms of the open source community have picked their weapon of choice. Um, every, every tool works for Parquet. Uh, Orc is pretty wide regarded. You know, you're going to get 90% of tools working with Orc, but for the open source community themselves seem to have headed down the, the Parquet route and the proprietary firms seem to have followed them as well now. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Parquet is... Uh, one of the smarter formats, I guess, right? I mean, that's who knows who knew that all that smart, all that metadata was uh, packed into one format for one file. So, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, what about partitioning? Right, you hear about that with data lakes. Um, yeah, what are what? Are, why should I care about partitioning? What does it give me? Yeah, so you know, it, it's the yin and yang of 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 optimization is parquet and partitioning. The the two things that go together, and they can either destroy your query performance or enhance your query performance and depending on how you do it, like any good optimization technique, like back in the database days where it was here, just chuck a non-clustered index at that table and hope for the best. Uh, partitioning works at the at the folder level. So, you know, fundamentally, as you've already said, Bob, it's it's a file system and file systems have folders. 
And if we were to take a, a traditional file of data and we'll just, we'll keep it with people because a person table is always good. Um, where maybe we had a bit of person and address data where we had the country that the person was born. Then we had their first name, their last name and their date of birth. We could store that as a parquet file inside one folder and make that one table. And that would work because we could store it in order of country because our analysts always come in and search UK, Johnny Chivers, and they always come in and search USA, Bob. And that would work. But actually you could optimize that further with partitioning. So partitioning is where instead of, in this example, the country, because our analysts are always searching on country resides inside the file, we could actually create folders of all the countries we have, like start at A, which would be something like Albania, something like that, and finish at Z like Zimbabwe. And then inside those folders, we would store the parquet file, but this time it would only contain the first and last name of that person, which means when the query engine goes and the first thing that analyst says is where country equals USA, it knows to go straight to the USA folder and only search inside that USA folder. Or if you were to do a query that says search USA and UK, then the engine in parallel could go to the USA folder and the UK folder at the same time and ignore all that other data, which means effectively you've cut that down by maybe 99% of the amount of data that the actual engine has to look at. So good partitioning strategies then rely on what the use case is because the partitioning strategy has to reflect either what the end user is querying or what maybe you're doing further upstream. So traditionally, for example, in financial exchanges, you would partition by trade date because everything comes in at a date and then the next day you switch trade date and we're looking at trades by date and that makes sense. However, further downstream, once that's been processed, analysts might come and say, I know as well as date, I actually want to also look on, you know, stock ticker because I'm looking at tickers, which means, okay, well, we're going to ETL this data into another part of the lake. And what we're going to do is keep that trade data as the first partition. Then we're going to take out the stock ticker on the file and put that as the second folder, so it's subfolder. And then in Parquet, we'll store the rest of the trade information at that level, which means when that analyst comes in, they can go trade date of, you know, September the 2nd, 2021, and stock ticker AALP for Apple. And then they only have the Apple trades quickly. Well, if we didn't have that partitioning strategy and we kept it as day, it would have to go through that entire day's trades to work out and grab the Apple ones. And that's the, that's the height of a good partitioning strategy. You're getting quicker queries or quicker analytics, quicker processing, and fundamentally, it's cheaper. Yeah, right. With something like Athena, where it's your pricing is based on terabyte scan, right? If you can reduce that I.O. and you don't have to bring as much back, absolutely. It's a good good way to save some money. That then that combined with Parquet for the compression, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say as well, you know, a lot of user education around this goes in handy. You know, a lot of people, a lot of business users, not the not to go on business users, are used to going into to SQL type of database, uh, whatever engine that is, and just writing queries. And, you know, they go rogue. And it doesn't really matter because you're paying all the time for it. While the likes of Athena, a good user education, even for an R with a good document that says, look, use a word clause on your SQL statement and use only these word clauses first in this order. So in the example I give there, always use trade date and then use country. And even if you want all the trade dates for the year, still put in the trade dates with a, with a between clause for the year and then put the country because we'll be holding seven, 10, nine years of data. Well, if you don't, you're literally going to search every single USA folder 
in every single trade trade day that we have up there. So a good user education experience, and, and as I said, it doesn't have to be complex, can really bring back results quickly. Yeah, that's an excellent, yeah, excellent point on that one, yep. Yeah. What a, we've talked about, S3 has come up a couple of times during this conversation, right? It's And it's arguably the leading object store and probably more data lakes are built on S3 than any other provider or service. Yeah, what's so good about S3, I guess? Yeah, so as I said, like my, my experience is AWS Data Lakes for the last kind of five or six years. And my first experience at Data Lakes was taking a Hadoop on-premise to S3. And if we look at what that was on-premise, it was a load of just disks, hard disks, the old spinny drives as they used to be. And cheap enough, but, you know, not most reliable pieces of tech. And on that system of Hadoop, what it would do is store your data three times across your entire cluster. So if you had three separate nodes, that one piece of data, such as Johnny Chivers, would be replicated across those three different nodes or three different servers or three different hard disks, however you want to think about it, uh, conceptually in your head. And it was kind of expensive. You know, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't exactly dear. You know, it was dear, wasn't cheap, same thing. And along comes S3 from AWS and says, right, you can bring your data up the S3 and we're going to charge you cents on the gigabit that you store. And we're like, okay. And best of all, it has redundancy built in out of the box where your data will be replicated at least three times across three physical different locations within the region that you specify. So a lot of people operate out of North Virginia. I think everyone pretty much at some point operates out of North yeah. Virginia. It has five or six data centers now. It might be up to six or what, Oh, yeah, least, AWS, yeah. called, uh, AWS called AZs, uh, availability zones, but physically they're data centers if you're in old speak, but they call them AZs. And that means when you store an object, the S3, it will get replicated three times uh, across three data centers, which means if something catastrophic happened to one data center, you've still got two copies of that, of that file or object in S3. So that's kind of from a redundancy and cost point of view. And then it's the integration it's a fundamental service in AWS, and then they have built every single data lake technology in AWS and analytic technology, for that matter, off S3. So it integrates into their ecosystem perfectly. If you can get it in the S3 in AWS, you can pretty much do anything with the data at that point. The world is your oyster. The only thing stopping you usually is cost <laughs> at that point, just making sure that you know you don't have an analyst away firing up a a, a GPU server somewhere in a data center trying to crack passwords or whatever it may be. <laughs> yep. Yeah, AWS is uh is built a great product with S3 and they've marketed it pretty well too and priced it pretty well as, as <laughs> to make things even better for them, right? You know, make it cheap, super cheap for yeah. people to store stuff there and then the rest of the compute and everything else yeah. will come with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the region you're in, obviously, for your S3 pricing. But I think the last time I had a look at it, it was about three cents a gigabit in Europe um, for the, for the for the month for that object for for a gigabit, like three cents. That is nothing yeah. in the scheme of things. Yeah, cheap and durable, right? That pretty much sums yeah. it up, right? Yeah. yeah. AWS is. And I, I don't recall when they came out with Lake Formation, but it, it is relatively new and <clears throat> they've been putting them out, you know, putting them out a certain amount of effort in improving lake formation. What, what is lake formation? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think lake formation was announced last two reinvents ago. 
it was a soft launch and then this the reinvent just passed so the one kind of like this time last year so a year ago was when they really came out with a fully fledged offer of lake formation and to kind of understand what lake formation is you just take a step back to the old data lakes and managing security most data lakes were managed by a thing called apache ranger and apache ranger sat over your hive metastore that a catalog would be in modern AWS terms, but Hive Metastore is the same principle. It was tables, schemas, databases. Ranger sat over the top of that and provided access to those databases the way you would traditionally do it on an on-premise database or an RD, RDBMS database. And it would be granted usually through AD groups. So again, similar to what you would normally do. And that could integrate in with your AD provider, be that Microsoft or an LDAP server, uh, depending on how you were running that. And that could also be done at a, at an individual level as well, if you were desired. And that's pretty much how security around data lakes was managed for a very long time. And then Lake Formation came along and said, well, we know in AWS, a lot of you guys are running your lake on S3 and you're using EMR for your compute and then you're running Ranger on top of EMR. And this is all a wee bit complex. So we're going to come along and offer our own security offering with Lake Formation. And we're going to enhance that as well. So the days before Lake Formation, if you weren't using something like Ranger, you had to use IAM permissions to grant accesses on resources within your data lake. And then and that meant using like the ARN, uh, the resource name inside your role that you were using the access to data, which was a pain to manage for, 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 for administrators. You, if you had access to a hundred tables, you would have a hundred ARN sometimes in there, depending on how you set it up. So that meant a lot of people went the Ranger and AWS went, right, we need to come up with a solution. And they did, which is where lake formation comes in. Quite simply, you register your S3 buckets as your data lake inside inside lake formation. You use the glue data catalog as you would to set up your databases and tables about the underlying information on S3. And then for security, you can actually put your AWS user or the role that you assume into lake formation and then grant it permissions. So you can say this role of data analyst has access to database A, B, C, and table E, F, G. And that was kind of the first offering of lake formation, but people said, well, actually Apache Ranger grants column access and it grants row access and tables as well. So not only could a data analyst see a table, we could actually stop them seeing a column or seeing a row. And AWS said, no problem, we'll bring that along. And they brought that along with the latest offering of lake formation and it's now ruled out globally, where you can go in and not only grant access at table level, you can grant access at column level and you can grant access at row level. And even further than that, they said, you can actually grant access at cell level. So there's a particular cell in that table, if you think about a table when it would be constructed, that a user doesn't, you don't want a user to see, be that because it equals, you know, it, you might be storing your data like HIPAA, dot, 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 and then a health number. And then you'd be like, don't show anything that has HIPAA. Just don't show it. If it says HIPAA in the string, don't show it. And you can start blocking things out at cell level with lake formation. And then lake formation, when you add in that user, it automatically grants all the permissions to that user. And then it can also obviously take that all the way. And that's done through an administration role. So you're back into that old database administration technology where a database admin is granting access to data based on role or user at table, row, or even cell level now. And that's the idea behind the information. Something that would have took you weeks, maybe weeks to solve uh, originally can now be done in a matter of hours. Like I've spun up a, a basic data lake in two hours now using the information with full security around it. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, that certainly makes it sound like it's a, a lot easier than the old IM days for sure. 
Yeah. And I know that leg formation is primarily focused around the security aspect and making that much easier, like you just explained. But it's recently come out with something called Govern Tables, right? Can you explain a little bit about those? Yeah, they were they were announced last reinvent. Uh, one of the one of the criticisms of data lakes, as we touched upon it in, earlier in the conversation, is the upsert business or the delete business of, of data lakes, which a traditional database can handle. And over the last couple of years, an open source project, it's now an Apache called Hoodie, was developed. And the idea of Hoodie was to um, sort out this upsert and delete business of, of data lakes where you had all your data sitting in, 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 in your in your table structure on the file system. And the idea was that Hoodie, if you applied Hoodie over this, you could keep sending data in and tell it whether it was an insert of data, an update of data, or a delete of data. And using the primary key, either on read or write, that was your preference, and usually people did it on read, it would lift all the existing data when you wrote a query, lift all the new data, and in memory, do a comparison on the primary key and work out had that data changed since the last time it was stored in Parquet. If it had changed, they would apply that format to the Parquet file and keep that as a new Parquet file, return the result set, write that new Parquet file down and remove the data that was sitting there before that needed to be upserted, deleted, uh, or, or uh, inserted. Govern tables pretty much work off the same premise where they're saying, Moving away from the traditional data lake and bringing in more of the, the data warehouse concepts, which is getting known as a data lake house, uh, another great buzzword that's coming up. They've entered governance, ta governance tables where they say there is the Hoodie open source, but this is our solution on AWS to optimize that with S3. You, you want to do upsearches on your data and delete. We have this optimized for S3 and this is our offering. Um, and now you can start to treat it more like a traditional warehouse, which was the ask really of, of people using data lakes. Gotcha. What, what is your opinion on multiple layers in a, in a data lake, right? I mean, I mean by that is raw and so raw layer and a curated layer. But you also have a, I guess, a, a strategy popularized by, I believe, Databricks, this bronze, silver, gold, where the idea is it's, it's raw, it starts in raw, but then towards the end of the layers, I guess, that there are, it's more refined, more curated, more useful to the average user. What is your opinion yes. on those? So every data lake I've worked in has used bronze, silver, and gold. It hasn't, I've never worked on a Databricks offering. I've worked on uh, Hortonworks Hadoop on-premise and then in the AWS for the last kind of five, six years. And every architecture that we've used has had a bronze, silver, and gold. And the idea, as you said, is the bronze is where your raw, unprocessed data sits in its rawest form. Silver is where you've validated that data. Um, so in terms of financial uh, exchanges, a lot of checks would happen on sequences to make sure that me all the messages arrive from the trade because you might want to rebuild the order of which they arrive for an order book. And that would be the silver. And then the bronze would be where you've enriched that data. So you might have trade data and you might have customer data, and then you might tie those two things together. Like a, like maybe like a join you would in, in a traditional database, and you would do that in ETL and then land that as a useful table for end users. And where I found it comes in best is to stand over the data governance proposition of quality and say to users, look, that bronze data has not been verified. It has not been checked yet. It's the rawest form. If you go lift that as a data scientist, we will not guarantee that it's been in its, in its purest format. If you lift it from the silver where we have verified that we haven't missed any messages. And if we did miss messages, we would go get them from another store to make sure we can fill the blanks up. 
you're you're solid. We can stand over that. And then the gold would be business level. And again, you'd say to someone, well, if you go lift that, that has business logic applied to it in the gold layer. So yes, it may be what you think it is, but also someone requested that to be a, an algorithm to be applied in a certain way to that data before it was landed. So it may no longer be the definition that you think that field is. And that goes back to the data catalog where you would say, but you can't find that out in your business data catalog. So go check that out and see actually what the definition of that column is by the time it gets to the gold layer. If it meets the, your, your criteria, go and take it. If not, we've actually got it in a silver layer in a format where we've checked it but we haven't done anything to it yet, like cleansed out nulls or removed blanks or something like that. But there's it in its raw format. And that's where I find the bronze, silver, gold comes in. I never get too hung up on, you know, there's that old meme going around the internet about the, the company that went out of business because they couldn't name a variable. And I always find it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> gold. I always find sometimes when you're having that architecture meetings about data and bronze, silver, and gold, you can really get into the weeds about what's silver and what's gold. And I always say, look, there's a silver gold, there's a rose gold in the middle somewhere. As long as you're happy enough that it's kind of there, <laughs> then just say it's gold, okay? And don't be too hung up on it. What we're really looking for here is the bronze is its rawest form. Silver is a form that we can stand over but haven't manipulated to a business level yet. And gold is that real like enriched data that no longer came from its source system as is. And that's why I stand over it really is when it comes to to that kind of side of, of the data and the business and its usefulness to the individuals within it. Gotcha. Nothing like a good meeting with five or more people. <laughs> and that's when the semantics get called out, right? Maybe we <laughs> should call it one, yeah, level <laughs> one, two, and three. Well, what about two and a half? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about this edge case that's never possibly going to happen? Exactly, right? Well, it is Friday afternoon. Let's, let's embellish this a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> yep, exactly. All right. In, in closing, since you brought it up, we got to talk about lake house, right? That's a term that's been a little bit more uh, talked about in, in, in the last few months, maybe even the last couple of years. What are your thoughts on lake house? Is it real? Yeah, I think the last time, the first time I encountered it was maybe 12 or 13 months ago. Uh, I can't remember who wrote it. I think it might have been on a medium article. And I was like, oh, this is where we're going. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> you thought it was a joke in. first, right? You thought, <laughs> yeah. okay, they're driving clicks. Driving clicks. So this is where we're going. And then I saw it come up at reInvent. I was like, oh, this is a thing, <laughs> right? Okay, this is this is definitely where we're heading. So we've talked about a data lake fundamentally being at its heart just the storage. And we've talked about the compute side of a data lake being the data lake ecosystem. And where data lake house comes in is where there's no longer that distinction in terms of what the concept is. It's the data lake ecosystem is now both the compute and the storage. And that means if you treat it that way, you can start doing more data warehousey, which I'm not really sure is an objective, but we're going there, <laughs> type things, <laughs> type things with your data. Now we've already touched upon it, you know, fundamental flaw of the data lake was trying to do inserts, updates, uh, inserts, updates, and deletes. Um, but that's been solved by the likes of governing tables or hooting. And that's a lakehouse concept. You know, that's a, that's a data warehouse concept where you would have a star schema or something of that nature, be that on premise or in, in a cloud somewhere, um, like Redshift, for example. And you would try and upsert your data into that through staging tables, uh, nightly or hourly or whatever way you were handling your, your data. And that's what a lake house concept is. It's saying, well, you know what? We're going to take all the best bits of the data warehouse, like it's upserts, it's deletes, it's speed, 
and apply them to the data lake. The only difference fundamentally, or the couple of differences fundamentally we're going to have is that, yes, the compute, the storage will always be separated because we just want high volume of data. So we're not going to run it on a server. And it's going to be a file system based like folders and files. Uh, I know a database at its heart is essentially a file system, but you know, the engines don't quite see it that way at times. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's where it's, we're really heading down there. And as I said, if you look at like the new offerings, so, you know, if you, if you look at Hootie, you look at government tables, you look at the way Presto is now working for SQL, um, you know, qu- queries at, at efficient speeds. You can actually do ETL with Athena now. There are companies out there, blue chip companies, um, blue chip tech companies, um, that, you know, you can, you can ride share with, uh, do the majority of their <laughs> ETL using Presto, for example. So they're just writing SQL queries to move data from A to B. Um, and that's the lake house concept where you're starting to use it more like a data warehouse than a traditional lake that used to be get all the data in and then figure out what to do. And I think during the course of this conversation, you can see where we started, get everything in to what I've as use cases over the last five years have used right up to that application layer. And I think by the time you're talking about bronze, silver, and gold, you're talking about hoodie, you're talking about upsets, you're talking about a good partitioning strategy, and you're talking about feeding applications off the data lake, you're at a lake house. That's where you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, it's the culmination of all of those things. Yeah. The evolution of, yeah, maybe data lake 2.0, maybe, but lake house is a little bit more. <laughs> Marketing Everyone friendly, loves it. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there was in a meeting, talking of meetings, <laughs> we were in a meeting one day and coming up for names with things and we had the data lake, but then we had the place where we wanted the users to access the data lake from. And we couldn't think of a name for all the different kind of like uh, engines or, or, or services that we were going to use for AWS, whether that be, you know, we might put somebody in the DynamoDB, we're going to use Athena for some of it, they're going to come in through SageMaker, going to come in through EMR, and we ended up we ended up calling it the pier, because the <laughs> pier sits at the edge of the lake. <laughs> yeah, why not? Just jump, just jump right in, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Too funny. All right. Well, hey, Johnny, I really appreciate you coming on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope the folks at home will enjoy it as well. Yeah. Brendan, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic. Yeah. And uh, everybody, again, go out to Johnny's YouTube channel. It'll be in the show notes in the description. Uh, like and subscribe. And then make sure you uh, do the same to this video. And uh, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, podcast, please do so. Thank you. Thank you.